All right, boys, let's end some history. Welcome back to Alpha Bunga Bunga. My name is Alex Hochuli. It's Thursday, the 7th of January, and I'm here with, as usual, Philip Cunliffe and George Hoare. And uh, Daniel Bessner is here to talk to us about uh, our, one of our favorite topics, about the end of history, and specifically about Francis Fukuyama and his intellectual trajectory. Uh, hello, everyone. Hello. Good evening. Yeah, this has been a little bit artificial just because we've just been recording this other episode, um, which you, listener, will already have heard, no doubt, um, talking about, uh, well, previewing the Biden administration. So we're continuing on from that, but uh, we're just uh, mounting this facade, uh, which which suggests that we have just started recording and we've just started speaking to each other. But we're all nicely warmed up, greased up and ready to, to slide into this conversation about Fukuyama. So let's get started. Uh, Fuku, Francis Fukuyama. That's how, I, that's how I prepare for all the conversations. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, so uh, Fukuyama famously declared the end of history in a 1989 National Interest article, um, which then he elaborated upon in a 1992 book. Uh, he was pilloried for this, not so much at the time, but but uh, afterwards because events happened um, and people thought that Francis Fukuyama had meant that there would be no more events, that no more big things would happen. Um, and when things then did happen, like 9-11 or like uh, the global financial crisis, they turned around and said, hey, look, stuff's happening. Um, but that is probably a misinterpretation of what Francis Fukuyama was uh, originally arguing. So, Daniel, maybe tell us why that's the case. Sure. So before we get into the famous The End of History, which I believe had a question mark um, and the original title. Um, and I wanted to highlight that because these types of arguments are a recurring theme in post-1945 American history. Perhaps most famously, I believe it was Edward Schills in 1955 who wrote an article titled The End of Ideology? Question mark. But when the, the articles always have the question mark, but when the book comes out, the question mark is removed. I'm not sure that says so much about the intellectual development so much as you know when you publish a book you need to have big statements and about the publishing industry in general yeah. so i just wanted to emphasize that question mark because i think it's critical <clears throat> but before we even get into that i want to tell people who francis fukuyama was before he wrote that famous essay because i think it's critical to understand what type of person fukuyama was because it, it's critical to understand what type of class he came from um so fukuyama Basically, he, he got a PhD from Harvard um, with a, a, a dissertation about Soviet policy in the Middle East. Um, and I believe it was defended in 1979. And the first job he got after uh, graduating with his PhD was not as an academic, but he was a, um, an analyst for the, the RAND Corporation. And of course, the Rand Corporation is the first national security think tank in American history, uh, and really the institution that made think tank what it was, a place for academics and intellectuals, some with PhDs, some without, to come and bring their, you know, their analytical skills to bear on international politics initially, and then other issue areas uh, over the course of the 20th century. It started as a national security think tank and then goes into domestic issues. But anyway, Fukuyama spent the first decade of his career as basically a specialist on what 
what at the time was called the Third World, and in particular, Soviet Third World foreign policy. So the first, you know, dozen or so, I, I forget the precise number, but he actually has very helpfully for the historian, he has a list of all of his publications on his website. Um, the first things Fukuyama wrote were all essentially about the Soviet Union in the, in the Third World, uh, initially focused on the Middle East, um, defined capaciously as from Egypt to Afghanistan, essentially, you know, the classic America, Middle East, <laughs> uh, including Central Asia. He spends, uh, in, 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 in one of his, the first or second year of his time at Rand, he goes to Pakistan and Afghanistan and is meeting with all these officials and is talking about the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, uh, talking about the Soviet, you know, um, interactions in the third world from the 1950s. So he's really someone who began his career as a Sovietologist, as someone who was focusing on the Soviet Union in this great grand struggle of the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union, and in particular, focusing on what would appear to be sort of this worldwide attempt by the Soviet Union to, to take over the, the developing world. And in particular, <clears throat> Fukuyama arrives at a very interesting time in history the 1970s and 1980s, where the Soviet Union seems to be embracing ideological struggle more than it did before. So if you look at what Khrushchev, um, Stalin's own thing, let's bracket Stalin for a period, but if you look at what the Soviet Union was doing in the 50s and the 60s, it's aligning with basically third world nationalist regimes, whether or not they're they're communist. Um, what happens in the 1970s and 1980s, at least to Fukuyama, at least to people in the United States who don't have access to Soviet documents, is that they're very, they're, they're more consciously trying to build Marxist national parties. So there's this re-ideologicization of the Cold War in the minds of people like Fukuyama in the 1970s and 1980s that mirrors the type of ideological politics of the, the, the high, what Andrew Stevenson, uh, or maybe not even him, but what people think of as the high Cold War, the initial 1950s decade of, of this ideological struggle. So I think I just wanted to say that context is critical because there's a reason that Fukuyama is so obsessed with ideology because he built his career arguing that the Soviet Union has taken an ideological turn that is focused on building Marxist vanguard parties throughout what we would today call the global south. So I just wanted to give that context, but I've been talking no, for a while. No, that's, that's, that's really useful. Um, There's one on, just before that, I just, just as a matter of interest, um, apparently, so he was um, the family, or at least his father, was interned um, during the Second World War, Fukuyama's father as a Japanese-American. No, that, that's kind of yeah, interesting. Um, and that, like, obviously, he uh, identifies with the American empire despite that, um, which is which is interesting. Um, but maybe we'll leave that to, to his biographers. Um, so yeah. I, obviously, as someone keenly aware of what Daniel's called the, the ideologization of, of the Cold War and, and the Soviet Union's ramping up of, of support for third world liberation movements and, and so on, um, he reaches this point, I guess, in, in 1989, maybe he's already gestating these ideas earlier, um, to write this article suggesting maybe we're reaching the end of history as, you know, um, as the Soviet Union and that whole historical experiment comes to a close. And not just the Soviet Union comes to a close as, as a, as a state. Of course, it, it, I don't think Fukuyama could have known at that stage that the Soviet Union itself would fall apart. Um, but just, something perhaps even grander than that, than the whole idea of socialism coming to an end and that leaving only liberal democracy uh, as the only option standing and that that would be in some sense a closure on, on the history books that 
from then on in, only this liberal democracy uh, would exist and that you might have little variations here and there, but that was basically it. Um, but I, but I, with that in mind, I wanted to discuss this idea of his misinterpretation, right? Um, and maybe Daniel, um, or indeed George or Phil, if you want to jump in on, on how maybe Fukuyama has been misinterpreted um, and what he actually meant by the end of history. Yeah, I think it's really important. The, the way I think I once described it, it's as if Herman's Hermits wrote the White Album. The end of history really comes out of nowhere. Uh, it, it is not presaged really in any of Fukuyama's writings. I think there's maybe a reference or two to Hegel in 1987-1988, but this essay really comes out of nowhere. And if I recall correctly, and I think I do, it was part of this series at the University of Chicago where right-wing money essentially brought in right-wing thinkers uh, to, to, pr to produce these essays. And I believe that's the context in which Fukuyama <clears throat> wrote The End of History. But I think it's critical to understand what, what's going on here because the end of the Cold War or sort of the what looks like under Gorbachev, the kind of de-ideologicization of the Soviet Union is really world ending for people like Fukuyama, for people who had essentially, you know, learned Russian, who had been spending their entire careers preparing for life um, and a career that, that all of a sudden disappears overnight. So I think there's also this, this turn in the late 1980s, early 1990s in order to uh, ascribe a type of Hegelian capital M meaning to what seemed to be this world historical shift. And this is what Fukuyama so, so, is doing in the end of it. So, so maybe I'm the so question sorry. wasn't the end of history, but the question was the end of my career. <laughs> yeah. And that's what he was worried about. Yes. There's also, I mean, the element that's striking is also obviously um, Hegel had been kind of, uh, you know, uh, lambasted for decades um, during the Cold War because he was seen as the ideologue of the other side, the famously the precursor to Marx, um, the defender of progress and history, which, according to the Soviets, obviously culminated in the Soviet Union um, and Soviet industrialization and what Soviet nuclear power and all of those things. And so, you know, I mean, the other part of it, I suppose, is this remarkable um, seizing the garb of the enemy. Um, just as the Cold War is ending, that he kind of seizes upon Hegel and makes Hegel into, rather than the kind of the philosopher of totalitarianism, uh, takes Hegel back as the champion of um, of liberal constitutionalism and uh, liberal democracy, and that in itself is um, you know quite a quite a daring and remarkable intellectual slight. Um, I don't want to say slight of hand, but a coup on the part of Fukuyama. Exactly, using the word coup, Phil. Um, the the, the yeah, meaning is very, very flexible. But I think in terms of misinterpretations of, of Fukuyama, um, I think probably the, the accepted picture is that this um, end of history is is some kind of, um, you know, victory or should be, you know, should be welcomed by by the winning side, triumphing over the losing side, and that's you know, it's good because history is over because we've we've won. But actually, the I think the tone is a, is a little bit different. It's much more. It's, you know, it's much more wistful and, um, you know, there's nothing left to do. There's no, you know, no <clears throat> lands left to conquer. All you can do at the end of history is just, um, you know, make, build computers and hi-fis. Um, so I think that's one of the kind of misinterpretations or or misreadings of Fukuyama was that this is straightforwardly the end of history, a, a victory of, of um, liberal democracy and that this is a, a, a quote unquote good thing. Because it's you know it's 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 the the banishing of the enemy. Instead, it's actually I think a lot more ambivalent um, than that in in Fukuyama's uh, understanding. 
Yeah, it's right. It's, it's not nearly I, as triumphal as is often presented. Danny. Yeah, and I think, and I think it's important to place Fukuyama in this larger trend of post-war liberals trying to out Marx. Marx, and it's something that goes back to Walt Rostow and the stages of economic growth, which is to basically come up with a similarly totalizing um, historical theosophy. You know, a philosophy of history that is able to be brought out. Um, and but I, I think that's exactly right. I think people misinterpret uh, the, the essay as being. <clears throat> totally triumphalist. And I, I think it, there is a triumphalist element in, in the sense that Fukuyama essentially argues that the idea, and, uh, you know, if people famously write that Marx turned Hegel on Hegel's head, Fukuyama is sort of rewriting Hegel. He's saying that the idea is as important to history as a material transformation. So in this, like, dialectical way, Fukuyama accepts uh, Hegelian dialectics but he's saying that that it's the idea of liberal democracy that has triumphed. And there there is a triumphalist element to it, but that triumphalist element is also tempered with a um, with a sort of lamentation. And I actually would like to read a quote um, <clears throat> from the essay uh, essay itself. So it ends. The end of this is a quote from the piece. The end of history will be a very sad time. The struggle for recognition, the willingness to risk one's life for a purely abstract goal, the worldwide ideological struggle that called forth daring courage, imagination, and idealism will be replaced by economic calculation, the endless solving of technical problems, environmental concerns, and the satisfaction of sophisticated consumer demands, end quote. So what he's actually saying is that the end of history is in some sense the end of romanticism, where there's going to be nothing for which people, nothing grand and great for which people are able to risk their lives. And this is where you see the type of American conservative tradition linked back to the German idealistic tradition, the romantic tradition from which Hegel himself is emerging. And it's a sort of lamentation is the end of romanticism, the end of grand dreams, the end of things yeah. to die for that forms a sort of la lamentary core, <laughs> to coin a phrase, of, of Fukuyama's um, So, I mean, there's an interesting element to this notion of ending, um, and indeed to history. And it's something that we discussed on a recent episode. It's the last episode that came out in 2020, uh, which called uh, The Kingdom of God is on Main Street, in which we interviewed Todd McGowan, uh, who's a psychoanalyst and philosopher, who has written a recent book on Hegel and his argument, and I think also Zizek's argument, and he, he uh, McGowan very much follows along with, with Zizek, um, is that you know, not only obviously is that Fukuyama has been misread, but that Fukuyama in some sense misreads Hegel, or that his version of Hegel has been taken um, from the French philosopher Kojève, who cut a long story short, and, and anyone else wants to kind of fill in here, um, please do. Uh, but the, the long story short is that the reading of Hegel understands it as, you know, as, as it's commonly kind of crudely presented thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. And the synthesis is a kind of putting an end to the conflicts and antagonism which, which generated this energy before. Um, and the argument uh, is that, in fact, that's a misreading of Hegel, that Hegel always maintains contradiction as a key thing. So contradiction doesn't go away, um, but that contradiction is moved to a higher level. How does that philosophical argument relate to politics and to history? The idea there would be that you don't have a settling of accounts of history that suddenly liberal that you just have this smooth homogenous liberal democracy around the world and that nothing else happens anymore that in fact this end that the end of history uh well that you couldn't really have an end of history anymore because th that antagonism those that contradiction will always be there so you don't have this whole 
holistic, uninterrupted liberal democracy, unproblematic, seamless interaction between nation states with no war and nothing and no kind of class conflict. No, that will never go away. Um, and maybe, Phil, you want to f- fill in a bit more here? Um, I mean, only to say the way, I mean, the theme that we um, developed with McGowan in that particular episode um, was McGowan's interpretation um that as far as I mean, as far as as far as I, what I took away, as far as I understand it, is that um, what starts or the end of history is the beginning of politics, um, is uh, the original Hegelian interpretation, and so it's that idea that um, McGowan wanted to separate out from Kojib. So he sees Fukuyama in an entirely different strain of um, interlocutors and interpreters of Hegel. And he has, um, he gives the kind of account of um, the kind of Hegelian, uh, the Hegelian text that Kojib was engaging with. And so he's, um, anyway, he makes a case about um, that essentially that it, Fukuyama's understanding is based on a misreading. Yeah. And basically, and since, 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 I was just going to say quickly just that since you know since the French Revolution, freedom has been launched into the world. You don't you can't rely on kings and gods and uh, whoever else authorities to to say what the world should be like. That kind of the future is in our hands, um, and for that reason, that you won't have any kind of stable configuration for any extended period of time. So you never really have a stable end of history in the way that Fukuyama um, prophesies, I suppose, in in nineteen eighty nine. There's a really interesting series of essays that appear in the national interest in the two issues, I believe, right after Fukuyama publishes his essay. And this is an argument that that is made immediately about his misinterpretation or his misapplication of Kojev's reading of, of Hegel. And Fukuyama in the original essay is very uh, upfront about how he's using Kojev in order to understand Hegel. I, I think he actually introduces the French philosopher before he introduces Hegel. So it's very clear that that it's been reading through Hegel. But I, I, I strongly encourage people to read those responses. They're written by people like Daniel Tra- Patrick Moynihan, Irving Crystal, Leon Wisseltier, <laughs> Gertrude Himmelfarb. So there's this series of really great kind of punchy responses, which I, I think anticipate all the critiques <clears throat> that were made against Fukuyama in the in the next 30 years. Um, but one thing that I do want to emphasize is, is that Fukuyama, in talking about the end of history, also says that one of the problems is going to be that people are going to be bored. And that he, I think the last line in the essay, if I recall correctly, is like maybe people's boredom will reignite history. So he's never really saying, like, it's like a vulgar Fukuyama to say that he's just saying that history has ended. There's a lot of <clears throat> ambivalence and sort of um, hedging in the in, in the original piece at least and i just wanted to underline that yeah no i mean there's definitely something i think we've mentioned on this podcast before sort of ballardian i mean in, in reference to the novel english novelist jg ballard um, who often depicted uh especially in in the kind of later in the writings from the 90s and 2000s this world of of kind of boredom where everything's kind of settled um but where people engage in increasing violent acts out of out of pure boredom just to kind of shake up the this world of simulacra um but it, it does seem that, that like that resonates a bit during <laughs> lockdown <laughs> a bit too much yeah no absolutely um but i think you know what's interesting and maybe we should move things a little bit forward and look at what fukuyama has written since then and what has preoccupied him um you know throughout the 90s the end of history kind of thing seemed pretty pretty real right pretty true um it was the time of the thomas friedmans of 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 this world right of this kind of seamless globalization 
um, American-dominated global capitalism um, with a couple of problems here and there. You know, you obviously have a genocide in Rwanda, but, you know, this is stuff in the far-off, um, less developed corners of the globe and, and in the centers of global capitalism. Uh, everything seems pretty pretty all right. Um, what's Fukuyama doing over this period? And, and maybe also take us forward into the 2000s, Danny. <clears throat> so Fukuyama... Um he begins to focus especially on um, uh, on questions of modernization and questions of democracy and the relationship between democracy and nationalism in the immediate post uh, 1991 period. And this is what I'm really focusing on right now uh, in my in, in in reading Fukuyama because now the question becomes: How do you spread democracy to the rest of the world, and in what ways is the United States able to encourage democracy? And he really does return to modernization theory in a strong way. Um, and I think this is important because you see this the deep connections between the liberalism of the mid-century period and the type of liberalism that reemerges in the 1990s. And that's important because um, I think we're able, from this macro historical perspective, to view the 1990s and 2000s as extensions of the Cold War um, and the Cold War thinking and Cold War logic as, a, as opposed to complete um, <clears throat> breaks with them. Um, but what's also interesting is I think Fukuyama, in a real sense, starts being pushed out of the types of conservative national security circles of which he was a, a, a part because they seem to embrace a more militant politics and a more militant democracy promotion effort than I think Fukuyama is himself totally uh, comfortable with. So you see a turn in Fukuyama to things like bioethics, you see a turn in Fukuyama to things about identity, and you see a, a, a turn away, not a total turn away, but a bit of, if we're looking at a macro career, <clears throat> a turn away from questions of, of total um, geopolitics, because in a sense, I think Fukuyama personally found these questions to be of less interest now that the grand ideological struggle w was at an end, because Fukuyama himself, I think, I think, you know, if all research is me-search, all writing is me-writing in some sense, and I think Fukuyama is reflecting his own ambivalence about what he himself should do in an era shorn of ideological stakes mm. and ideological um, and this is why he's turning to hi-fi. Um, and I think Fukuyama would probably say something along the lines, I'm less familiar with his later works right now, I'm so embedded. I've read them, but right now I'm so embedded in the mid-1990s, so I'd like to hear what you guys have to say about it. But my sense is that one of the uh, reasons that Fukuyama has sort of like turned to questions of identity is that he still, in some sense, thinks that that liberal democracy probably a more regulated liberal democracy and more, more social de democratic liberal democracy, but liberal democracy nonetheless is, is still a, 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 an important form of, of political governance that is uh, challenged a little bit by China and its form of authoritarian capitalism, but it's still sort of in the broad liberal camp in a way that uh, Soviet communism wasn't. Does that make you see what I'm saying? It's like yeah, a fight yeah. within liberalism yeah. as opposed to a fight between two yeah, different ideologies. Absolutely. He's had, I think he, he's, you know, he's someone who's got a remarkable um, instinct for, um, for the kind of uh, shifts in, in intellectual and public discussion of, uh, of big themes. So, you know, he kind of, he was there at the right moment to um, elevate US victory in the Cold War to the, to give it the kind of endowed with the appropriate kind of world historic uh, glamour and, um, and, uh, 
hubris, I suppose. And then, like you say, he kind of follows this track of talking about bioethics and trust was another one and identity and state building, obviously, when the invasion of Iraq later kind of disintegrates. And he's always he's very good at kind of anticipating shifts, which he's able to profit from um, with, uh, you know, a well-timed kind of intervention. Um, and I mean, it you know, kind of so it does give him slightly a slightly kind of hackish character. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, notwithstanding that, I think it is he is probably um, it speaks to his to his insight that he's able to identify these shifts before they happen and is able to ride those waves. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting, obviously, that he has, you know, recently and this makes obviously kind of headlines and even the more popular press uh, that he lamented, you know, the loss of socialism um, as it's kind of capitalism's mirror because it it had an, an internal impact on capitalism. The capitalism lost its internal vigor, its desire to innovate, and it, and so on. You know that effectively, even according to capitalist logic, that the lack of competition, external competition between capitalism as a system and you know Soviet communism as a system, meant that capitalism became lazy, for lack of a better word. And I mean that is that of course is Fukuyama's conception, but I think that's something that we would all agree with. But we would probably put more emphasis on the lack of uh, an enemy at home, the lack of uh, a socialist challenge from from within, within Western uh, capitalist countries that has uh, so impacted um, our societies. And then why there seems to be so much drift, so much decadence, um, why mm. elites aren't able to organize things even even seem even barely uh you know barely competently and you know COVID is the best example of this um because there's just nothing to provide that disciplining function in the way that in the way that socialism used to yeah exactly yeah i mean it, it works in terms of capitalist logic as well that you know if you don't have that competition then you know you're you're not forced to to um be efficient to innovate and so, you know, you, you, you don't, if you're a, a monopoly um, in terms of, <laughs> I guess, societal systems, then it is going it, to, it's going to impact on your, um, on the, the quality of the goods that you're producing. Yeah. And I think what, what's also interesting about this, and uh, I don't know, feel free to disagree with me, guys, but I, I get a sense that Fukuyama, even though he's kind of like rolled back certain of the triumphalist elements of the end of history thesis, I think he would still say that he's right, that there's no like grand ideological project, world historical challenge to capitalism that is really on the on the horizon. Yeah. I don't, and I don't think you can, and I don't think you can dispute that. I mean, I think we would all hold to that same idea. Exactly. So in, in, in that original sense, we are living in the end of history. Uh, in that there's no like social force behind some grand ideological alternative to capitalism in the Hegelian, you know, Alphemon sense. Well, exactly. And I mean, but this is the, this is the thing. And it's maybe useful to try to tease out in this idea, the difference between, um, you know, history with a capital H and, and consequently, you know, the end of history as a period in which things have been settled. Um, and the specific forms of liberal, of liberal democracy and liberal democracy being seen as, um, the, you know, kind of shining city on a hill, the model to be emulated. Cause the latter clearly has come to an end. I, yeah, I don't think liberal democracy has any great strength, internal energy to it, nor does it have a lot of admirers, um, around the world in the way that, in the way that you did in the, you know, in, in the nineties and maybe even in, in the, you know, in the two thousands. Um, and so people obviously casting around for other models um, in Latin America, more for economic reasons than ideological reasons. But they're still a turning towards China as 
a better model of a managed capitalism than you get presented by the US or, you know, really only maybe the Nordics seem to be like, well, that's maybe a model to be emulated. Other than that, um, you're looking at the US and you're thinking, well, that's not necessarily better than, than what China has on offer, especially if you're a less developed country where, um, a certain technical, technological development, a sort of modernization from above seems a more, more appealing than the United States model, which promises no modernization, it seems. Uh, I think this raises really interesting questions because um, I am bearish. I've been using a lot of Wall Street terminology today. Sorry, guys. I'm just, just in that mode. Uh, but I'm bearish on the idea that <laughs> I'm embarrassed on the idea that the Soviet Union, particularly after the 1960s, had like gigantic world historical ambitions to make the world in its own image. And I, I don't think that the various fundings of, of, of these third world parties, most of which, of which were in incredibly poor and most of the times not even particularly regionally significant countries, demonstrated that the Soviet Union had any ambition approaching that of the United States. And my sense is that China wants to dominate its region and but does again not have global ambitions that are analogous <clears throat> that are analogous to the united states and then this raises questions from the historian's perspective is whether the cold war was sort of like a one side uh, the sound of one hand clapping if, if fukuyama is really reflecting the lamentation of a class that had spent 50 years arguing in favor of this world historical struggle that it was really fighting alone um and i think that's an interesting question and i maybe just i don't i hope i'm not being just a contrarian but over the last few years i'm drifting to the side of the united states was fighting a chimera you know it wasn't fighting something that was really bent on world historical domination if that if that makes sense yeah no i think that's right i mean i'm interested what phil has to say because i'm sure he has an opinion on this but i i tend to the cold war is overstated um insofar as we're talking about a, a geopolitical conflict. The ideological nature of that geopolitical conflict is overstated, I think. Yeah, no, I mean, I think I agree entirely with what Danny said. Um, in fact, I, one hand clapping is a great way in f perhaps to give a different perspective on the Cold War. Um, and also, like you say, I mean, the kind of, you know, funding funding uh, these kind of uh, small, you know, these kind of small guerrilla insurgencies in desperately poor um, and difficult post-colonial countries was never going to, um, you know, was never going to be a world historic transformation of anything at all. Um, so one hand clapping, I think, is a great way to um, to give some perspective on the Cold War, in fact. Yeah, and I think the again, from the perspective of those third world countries, the, they that that kind of superpower standoff offered them different avenues for modernization. And obviously they could play one off against the other. And you have that to a certain extent now with, with playing the US off against China. But again, I think China presents an image at least of some modernity, which might be achievable. Uh, whereas the US doesn't. I don't think the US, um, both in, in kind of the material support or otherwise that it gives to developing countries, um, or ideologically in terms of an image of, of a future, I'm not sure that it presents that anymore. Um, you know, the Chinese are going to come in and build a, build a ton of railways and stuff. Well, that's something. Um, what, what does the U.S. have, have to offer? And again, I don't want to yeah. try to claim that this is a big ideological conflict in the way the Cold War was. In fact, we've just said the Cold War wasn't that much of an ideological, uh, conflict as is often presented, but this is even less so. Um, 
but I do think that. Yeah, I mean, go ahead. We we talked about this on, to say earlier in this episode, but it was in the episode recorded earlier this evening, um, which is not this episode. But yeah, I mean, the the authority, uh, American authority, is not at an all time high, exactly. Um, you know, recording this on the seventh of 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 Jan, um, and I think that is, you know, that that is part of the. Um, of what will determine what the, the the meaning of 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 the conflict is, because if you have a I guess a, a geopolitical clash of of two alternative um, forms of society, and one of one of those at least seems internally contradictory, exhausted, um, and extremely unself confident as the the US does, then I, I don't know. It, it obviously inflects the meaning of the of the entire um of the entire conflict or the the context um in which you know the us and china are, are playing out that geopolitical rivalry i mean i i, I wonder about whether the conflict between the china and the us will give rise to new forms um i think one thing that it does do for for the former third world um at least it's give give them options right it gives you gives you an option to play one against the other where um for 30 years it was just the us and that was more difficult to more difficult to navigate because you were completely dominated. Um, I think that's right. But what's also interesting about the actual, if you look at the mechanics of things like the Belt and Road Initiative, I mean, it's Chinese companies with Chinese workers with very, you know, unclear development. Uh, it's unclear how much these modernization, modernization projects, especially in the last year or two, are being embraced by local populations. Mm. When you look back at the Cold War, I think there was more of a sense that you needed to win hearts and minds. Um, at least with development projects, right? So you employ local workers or things along those lines. And I, I think that is just not the case um, anymore, and, or at least in how the Chinese view, uh, the Chinese state to be more specific, uh, the Chinese Communist Party, the Chinese state views uh, development and why it's crucial to their uh, own political project in their region, which I think essentially the Chinese uh, state's project is to create a series of counter hegemonic institutions that allow them to dominate their region. That's what I think it is. It's not like world striding world bestriding and in, in my mm. read of it yeah no i think that's an important qualification um maybe just to round this out i uh, wanted to discuss something that actually george had suggested this two big ideas that we use to discuss the tone and temper of the contemporary age one the end of history which we've already discussed and the other is capitalist realism a term um as i'm sure you'll know was invented by mark fisher uh the late mark fisher um and I think George had the idea of maybe standing these two up against one another. So George. Uh, yeah. I mean, my idea was for it to be, to be a question. I didn't actually have an answer. Um, oh. myself. <laughs> yeah. No, it, you, you're allowed to do that, right? You're allowed to come up with ideas for things to discuss that you, and then not, not have other people discuss them. Yeah. an answer. Yeah. No, no. I mean, I, I guess the, the, the two um, have a certain, you know that there are definitely some similarities, and I think capitalist realism, um, which came out in 2010, 20, 2009 or eight, even, um, perfectly captured that cultural feeling of exhaustion um, and that idea of that there is no alternative, um, and what that had done to you know specifically to British politics and society. Um, and I guess there is, you know, there isn't a sense. We were talking a little bit about this earlier. The the tone of Fukuyama's end of history being um, 
one of i guess like what is there left to do or or you can turn towards identity you can turn towards a lot of these much smaller concerns but there is something that's really missing um so yeah i mean i think there's there's obviously a similarity in terms of the starting point um yeah no i think that's right and i think like as a professor assigning those two essays in tandem would be really great because i think they're they're basically arguing very similar things except one is focused on the level of like grand ideas and the other is focused more on the level of the individual living within society so i think they're both two sides of the same coin of this moment where there doesn't seem like there's a possibility of of, of meaningful structural political alternative and i would say again we're still in this moment we're, we're still capitalist realists which to me, at, at this point, it's been so long. I mean, this is just a question, but why the hell do you think that we haven't been able to come up with any alternative grand ideological projects? Like, what is going on? We're still talking about the same basic grand ideas that were created in 1848 and its wake, essentially. Yeah. You know, there's fascism, there's communism, socialism, and there's liberal democracy. Uh, so, like, I, I don't know. It, it's almost a more interesting historical question to ask why has there not been that sort of grand ideological project promoted. Are we all really accepting of the Fukuyama Fisher thesis? Well, I think the, probably no, the only innovations that there are are kind of abstruse, right nutty right wing ideas like neo reaction and things like that, which even them borrow from nutty, kind of nutty left wing ideas things. like postmodernism. Well, indeed, as well, yeah, which which is just a, a reflection of accelerated neoliberal capitalism, anyway, as people pointed out decades ago so i mean i think i think you make a good point danny and it's i think it it goes to the sh it shows that um in many ways the problems posed by the 19th century still haven't been resolved and um the 20th century was um you know uh, an attempt to resolve some of those problems and uh, clearly you know it failed i mean the, the legacy of the 20th century is mostly um at least in terms of its politics and institutions and ideas for the most part is abysmal um and so the lack of innovation speaks to the lack of resolution i think I think that's exactly right. And it's kind of despairing to think we're still living in the shadow of 1848. <laughs> it's, it's kind of pathetic. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. And I, I, one of the, I guess maybe, maybe just round this out. One of the things to be looking out for on the horizon and what something that might drastically change the whole global system and how we and how we relate to it is that there are maybe a few, maybe two powers who have a certain internal dynamism not driven by um, a certain ideological alternative project. Yeah, um, but yeah, just, Brexit but, Britain. <laughs> that's not where I was going with that, sorry. Um, you get another guess. No, but it's it's mainly India and, and maybe even to a greater extent China who where there is a sense of a future, um, but the future is still very much within the same system. It's not um, really presenting an, an alternative in, in kind of a socialist future, nor is it... Um, the kind of capitalist U.S. in the Cold War. Uh, but yet there still seems to be a, a kind of internal dynamism there. Um, I remember personally going to India to help out with actually what was the school's debating competition. And these kids, who are often from from kind of uh, good kind of upper middle class schools, um, but it, so I'm not, it's not meant to be representative, but what I thought was interesting is how much they saw their own future, their own subjectivity tied with the future of their country, which in the much more individualistic West, you would never find that because, you know, you might want to be a, you know, you might want to be a YouTuber, whatever you might want to be in the future, but it's not that your career progress is tied to making India great and achieving its historical destiny or anything like that. And that was very interesting to find. 
I guess the question is, how long does that last if those countries face a serious economic crisis and an undermining of their own self-confidence? And also, these countries are so gigantic, I think it's very difficult to tell how much that permeates the population. Oh, indeed. I think that's very difficult to tell whether right, this is just the very but the very fact that the you know but the elite, the elite have it the elite have yeah, it and that's that what matters share yeah. in it in a way that sure. i think is not true of um of elites um of most elites i think in western states i mean you know uh, joking about brexit britain aside i mean if you think about european elites for instance they certainly don't see themselves as bound up with national projects but with supranational projects and they yeah. actively distance themselves from their fellow citizens the notion that you would have to um um, you know, fight to win their um, respect, uh, to win their political support, their consent, to integrate their hopes and uh, desires into political projects. That's beyond them because all of their, you know, they're invested in, um, they're still invested in the kind of uh, globalized liberalism of the 1990s and are trying to perpetuate it. I totally agree. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. So on that glum note, maybe we should uh, leave that there. Um, there's obviously more to come in the end of the end of history. Uh, there's always more. That's that's the important thing to remember. There's always more. All right, that's it for now. Catch you later. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.